This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. I'm so excited that you're here with us today as we get started in this series because for many of us, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, but for a lot of us, it's also the most complicated time of the year. I mean, it's just what Christmas does. It crams all of our priorities into just a few days. We have to make economic decisions with our money that divide up our money among people. And we literally say, as Michael Scott said on The Office, I love you this many dollars worth, right? I mean, we really really decide that I'm going to spend this much money and I, we can afford to spend this much money on presents and this much goes to this person and this person and this person. And, and so it, it's a tough decision-making process. And then we have to divide our time up around our families. And especially if you're married, especially if you're newly married, it is extremely complicated. I can remember when we were very newly married and we had moved out of state and we would come back in and it meant that we would miss out on family traditions that had been around and that family traditions needed to be shifted. And it just got complicated. And that was without any complications. Some of you come from Families where you have literally eight Christmases because both parents have been divorced four times. I can't imagine the level of complication that goes into Christmas when you're coming at it from that angle, right? It just has to be that way. Christmas, and it doesn't matter how good your family is, every family gets complicated. Every family gets complicated. See, I think that it's so interesting that the... People that we hang out with during the year that we, we you know, we're, we're, we don't mind having dinner with them. And, but then when it comes to Christmas, somehow they just get on our nerves a little bit more. You ever notice that? You ever notice that? Like, like that, uncle, you see him, you see him in Walmart. You go and talk to him, hug him, love on him, then walk away. Nothing's wrong. Nothing going on on the inside. But at Christmas when you have to sit down and have a meal, all of a sudden, all those little things just get on your nerves a little bit more, right? Because Christmas is complicated. I think at Christmas we're reminded of a few things. We're reminded of problems that we cannot solve. Maybe we're reminded of somebody who hurt you. And though you're doing the work inside to forgive them, that's a problem that on your own, reconciliation, forgiveness happens because of me, reconciliation happens because of us. And so reconciliation isn't happening because they're not making the decision and the problem is there and it feels so gross and difficult. Problems that we cannot solve and there are people that we cannot control. Some of you, this Christmas, the most heartbreaking part of Christmas will be that you'll sit down with a son or a daughter that you know is making a decision in their life or making decisions in their life that's totally sabotaging their life. And it'll break your heart simply because you cannot control them. Maybe it'll be a brother or a sister, maybe even a mom or dad. But Christmas reminds us of the people that we cannot control. And it reminds us of expectations we cannot meet. 
the people that we feel like we've disappointed, no matter how hard we've tried, no matter how much we've done. And because of all those complications and difficulties, Christmas sometimes just gets difficult. It just gets difficult. It gets complicated. But if we're honest about that experience, it also reminds us of these truths. That I am the problem I cannot solve. The reason that all these problems bother me is because I actually... It's an external reflection of something that's going on on the inside of me. I'm, I'm the problem I can't seem to solve. I, I'm, I'm the person that I can't seem to control. I set expectations that nobody can meet. And so it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. Every family gets complicated. Every family has its own version of difficulty. Your family may be in a season right now where the complications are very low. But in time, this season, which is the most wonderful time of the year, for all of us will become difficult, which is where feelings of Excitement will be mixed with feelings of sadness. And the difficulty associated with Christmas happens often in different ways. Maybe this year you're anticipating Christmas to be difficult because you lost somebody that you loved. There's somebody that you loved and you cared for them. Maybe it's first Christmas without mom or dad or brother or sister, and there's pain that's associated with that. Maybe this is a Christmas where you're leaving behind a significant relationship. There was somebody in your life, and you loved them, and you cared for them, and this is the first season without them. That relationship has been broken. It's been severed. They're no longer around. Or maybe it's just as simple as you're leaving a season behind. Maybe maybe this is the first Christmas where you sent off a kid to college. And all the buildup over the whole month, they're they're not there for that. Maybe it's the first Christmas where you sent the last kid off to college. See, there are a million reasons why this Christmas could be difficult. But regardless of the difficulty, Christmas still seems to be filled with joy. And I believe that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening, but because of what's happened. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening, but because of what's happened. Now, I love Easter. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to, right? That's just how it works, right? Easter is like our Super Bowl, right? It's it's like the day in the year where the person that only comes to church four times in the whole year, they're going to come on Easter, right? We're going to have big crowds. It's going to feel in each service like the Holy Spirit is here, right? And it's really just that the room is just crammed, filled with people, right? 
We love Easter. Pastors love Easter. Lots of people love Easter. Easter's the celebration of the most significant day in human history. The most significant day. Think about that. That's the day that Jesus was crucified in that short span of time that existed between his crucifixion and the resurrection. When we talk about all the events that encapsulate the passion narrative of Jesus, we're really only talking about ours. It is the most significant event in human history. But Christmas, well, Christmas is different. If you put together in a timeline what we call the the birth narrative of Jesus, the trip to Bethlehem, the, the shepherds, and then the wise men, and then the escape to Egypt, you, you put all of that together, you're not talking about days, you're talking about months. It's a whole season. So I would say that Christmas is the most important season in human history. And Christmas came to be on December the 25th because Emperor Constantine of Rome, after he became a Christian, decreed that there needed to be a day that the birth of Christ was celebrated and it was decided that it was the 25th. Now, there was very little evidence that Jesus was born on the 25th at that point. There are people who make all kinds of arguments about this. But I love the fact that in God's providence, for those of us that live in the northern hemisphere, Christmas represents for most of us the start of winter. Which is the most barren and bleak of seasons. It's as if God reminds us, I planted a seed in the soil of Bethlehem and you just wait and give it time, and be patient, and it'll grow. Give it its season. And there are some of you that are in that season of waiting. Some of you are in seasons where Christmas is going to be difficult because there are things that you have lost and things that you're lacking and things that you're leaving behind. But the fact that you can't fix Christmas is why God sent his son Jesus into the world. The fact that you can't escape those feelings that, that even though there is joy, there is this coupling sadness. That is the reason that God sent his son Jesus. Because Christmas is not just the most wonderful time of the year because who is with us. It is the most wonderful time of the year because who is for us. Who is for us. So we know about Jesus because of four distinct letters that were written and recorded into what we now call the Bible, the scriptures. We know them as gospels. The term gospel literally means good news. They are the representation of the good news of the life of Jesus. So there were four of them that record, were recorded. The, the first one is written circa uh, around 60 A.D. by a guy named John Mark. We call it the book of Mark. 
He was heavily influenced by Peter. He was a cohort of Peter, spent time with Peter. And so a lot of what's contained in the book of Mark is really the expression of Peter's reflection on Jesus. Now, it's 30 years at that point after the death of Jesus. So if you think with me, let's think back 30 years from now is 1987. How many of y'all were alive in 1987? All right, how many of y'all were not alive in 1987? Raise your hands up high. All right, y'all know nothing about life, right? Just telling you. Just, you know what came out in 1987? You know what came out in 1987? Here, here's what came out. Some of your favorite movies, all right? Dirty Dancing came out in 1987. Are there any Dirty Dancing fans in here? You're not supposed to admit that in church, folks. You're not supposed to admit that in church, all right? <laughs> That's funny. I don't care you are. All right. You know, I'm a music fan, too. Do you know what album came out in 1987? U2's Joshua Tree came out in night. It is 30 years old. That means where the streets have no name is 30 years old this year. See, 30 years is significant because at about 30 years, oral history begins to break down. And so because of that, up to that point, they had been telling the story, telling the story. And then there became the need to put it down on paper so that we could go back to the paper and reference it. So Mark begins it. And then two of Jesus's very close associates, a guy named Luke, who was a physician, and then a guy named Matthew, who was actually one of the disciples, both take the work of Mark and rewrite it and do that to distinctly different audiences, Matthew to to Jewish folks and Luke to non-Jews or to Romans. And they both include, at the very beginning, the story of Jesus' birth. This is where we get the details of the visit of the Magi and the the birth and the, the manger and the shepherds and all of the things that go around the birth of Jesus come out of those two records. But the last gospel that's written is written significantly later between 90 and 100 A.D. by a guy named John. Now, at this point in time, the church is beginning as oral history in the memory of Jesus fades. The church is beginning to question some things about Jesus, potentially question, was Jesus really God? And John, who lived in direct intimacy with Jesus, is going to write down at the very end of his life stories that he had probably been telling his entire life. You may be asking the question, who is John? Who is this guy? Well, we meet him in Scripture. We actually know that originally he was a fisherman because the first scene that he appears in, he's in a boat with his dad and his brother. And Jesus invites him to come follow him. He exits the boat with his brother, leaving, pay attention, leaving his dad behind to go follow Jesus. And he becomes what we call in theological studies one of the inner three. He's one of the three people that Jesus always has with him. We could even say that out of all of them, John was probably his best friend. Because in the very end, he's the one who didn't run. Because from the cross, Jesus apparently can see John and see his mother Mary. And he looks at John and says, John, son... Meet your mom, and then he looks at Mary and he says, Mother, your son. 
And historical tradition tells us that from that point on, John cared for Mary as if it were her own mother, as if he were related to her and, and as if she had given birth to him. He later became a pastor in Ephesus. Uh, the tradition is, is that he moved her with him to Ephesus and took care of her until she died. John is the only one of the 12 disciples who would die of natural causes. Judas hung himself right after the death of Jesus, and then the other 10 were actually executed because of their belief in Jesus. And they tried to execute John. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. They actually boiled him. It was a, a, a very common way of execution. They would boil someone in tar. It would close in all the pores on your body, and your body would literally rot itself to death. They boiled John in tar. John stepped off, just kind of wiped everything off, like, that's all you got? You know, I'm good. What else? You got something else for me? And they decided that, well, we, I don't think we can kill this guy. So they exiled him at the very end of his life, which is where he wrote the last book in the Bible, the Revelation. See, John begins his story vastly different. As John begins the gospel, he doesn't tell the story of Jesus' birth. Instead, John begins by telling us about the significance of the birth of Jesus, which is very interesting because he doesn't include all of those details. After a lifetime of reflection, he begins very differently. And it's as if he's telling us, this is the reason why this is the most wonderful time of the year. This is why the birth and the season of Jesus' birth is the most wonderful time of the year. And it's important to know that John grew up in a season where if he were a Jew, and he was a Jew, he grew up in one of the most difficult ages. I mean, unparalleled. And we know the horrors of the Holocaust that was leveraged towards those who were Jewish in Europe during the 1930s and early 40s. We know the horrors that were there. This was worse. Immediately after the emergence of the church, the emperor of Rome in about 60 AD sent a massive army into Israel. They attacked first in Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, and then moved northward towards Jerusalem, attempting to take the city, killing everything in their path. People were pushed back into the city. Jerusalem was heavily fortified with a massive wall. The armies of Rome were unable to penetrate it. And so what they decided to do was they built another wall around that exterior wall, put a permanent camp. Instead of just saying, good, good is good enough, we're just going to leave you alone, they put a permanent camp outside the city. And for seven months, they besieged the city of Jerusalem. Nothing came in. And if anything tried to go out, it was executed. Try to escape, you're killed. According to historical tradition, John, at this point in time, still lived in Jerusalem. For seven months, completely cut off. No food in, no water in, no supplies in. People began to starve. Because of the starvation and because of massive death, disease broke out. Historians record several outbreaks of what we would call the plague. 
People died at ridiculous rates during those seven months. And John is sitting inside that city. Eventually, after seven months, the Romans finally break through. And the historian Josephus, I did not say Bocephus, okay? All right, I know we're in Stanley County. Josephus was an early church historian. Josephus records that 1.1 million Jews were killed in the taking of Jerusalem. 1.1 million. Can I just put that in context? That's almost the entire population of the city of Charlotte. 1.1 million and 100,000 were taken into slavery. 100,000. That's almost twice the population of Stanley County taken into slavery. And John was there to witness it all. The people who died were his friends, his family. The people who were enslaved were his sisters, friends. And as he concludes the story of who Jesus was to him, after all the pain that he experienced, look at what he writes in John chapter 20, verses 30. And 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. After all that he had seen, John still believed. After all the horror and pain and loss, John still believed. What a powerful thing to know. See, because I don't even know if you remember the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was surrounded by just as much pain. It was in a time where a guy named Herod the Great was ruling um, over Israel. Herod, Herod was what we call a puppet king. He was installed by Rome to take care of this. So he wasn't a real king. His authority actually came from Rome. And he was a wicked man. Wicked he was so power-hungry and insecure that when he thought or even began to think or reason that someone was against them, he had them murdered. This would include lists of his own children, his wives, his family members, those who were his closest friends. He was a madman. In the Magi from the East... Who did they go to see to figure out where the king was being born? Herod. And what do you think he did? He called in all those who were in the know and said, where, according to the scriptures, is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Well, in Bethlehem, of course. So he ordered a decree that all boys under two years old in Bethlehem and its vicinity be executed. 
I don't know if you've ever held a child that's under two. I have a son right now who is eight months old. That means every mom had their child ripped out of their hands only to watch them executed in that city. Like John was born into a difficult season. He lived through massive difficulties. So how does he open up the story of Jesus? How does he begin telling us who Jesus was? Look at how he begins in first or in John 1 verses 4. We're going to start there. In him was life. In him was life. The Greek literally says, in him life was. Not he was breathing and he kind of existed relationally and he was fun to be around. No, no. There was something that was tangible, that was in him, that was different than the rest of us. There was life in him. And it was bigger and better than anything that we've ever seen before. This life was broader and stronger. And then he says this. And that life was the light to all mankind. Now notice all mankind. Because... Early in the, the arc of the story of Jesus, the Messiah is believed to come and rescue those who were on the inside, those who had things right with God, those who had been invited in. The Jews were going to be reconciled to God through the Messiah, and he was going to rescue them in those times they believed from the tyranny of Rome. But John says, no, in him was life. And that light was the light for all mankind. My, my best friend, Jesus, came to give something to every person who would ever live. There's nobody on the outside. If you're willing to receive the gift, you can be on the inside. I think it's interesting that as John opens this story, the way that he begins by describing Jesus is not through relational terms. He doesn't call him his friend. He doesn't even call him his Lord. He doesn't use Jewish terms to describe. He doesn't call him rabbi or teacher. He calls him the light of the world. You see, the reason Christmas is so powerful is because Christmas is the day light was born. The day light was born. And I know that you may be thinking, but didn't that happen? Like in creation, isn't that how this all starts? God separates the dark from the light. No. We're talking about something that is vastly different and even is a reflection of what began there 
but has greater implications for us because then after saying that that light was for all mankind, he drops the most significant phrase when he says this, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overtaken it. Leave that verse up there. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overtake it. After all the pain that John had experienced, after all the loss that he'd experienced, the way that John begins by introducing us to Jesus is by calling him the light of the world. And I don't know about you, but I recognize that there is darkness in this world and that there is darkness often in me too. And John gives us this clue as to the power of who God really is. When he says this mighty truth, the darkness cannot overtake the light. I mean, it's physics, actually. Because the only way that something can be dark is for the light to be absent. So when Jesus is born, the light of the world enters and light itself is born. I don't know what kind of darkness you are facing this Christmas. But I think that there are some of us that need to be reminded of the power of God's light. See, as we experience the complications of Christmas and the unmet expectations that we feel and sense during this season. So we miss loved ones. Loved ones that won't be here. Loved ones that have passed. As we're reminded in this season of the darkness that exists in this world and the darkness that exists in our own heart. When the ones that we love remind us of the ones that we've lost and when the things that we get remind us of the things that we'll never get. I hope that this Christmas we're reminded that there is life and light that breaks through the darkness. There is life and light that breaks through the darkness. If you're struggling with Christmas and As you look forward to the experience of being with your kids and being with your family, and there's that mixture of joy and sadness, it's my prayer that this year that you would see that there's life and light that breaks through the darkness. It's as if John opens recognizing the tension that there is darkness in the world, but he lets us know the end of the story, that dark cannot win. Darkness cannot win. As long as there's light, darkness cannot win because darkness cannot overtake light. 
In the end, the light wins. And Jesus is that light. Jesus is that light. During Christmas, this is where we find our hope. As believers, this is what our hope is anchored into. It's not anchored into something that we can earn or achieve. Our hope is anchored into the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. And that light cannot be overtaken by darkness. You see, Christmas really and truly is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening, but because of what happened when God sent his son Jesus into the world. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.